This presentation is provided by the UNC Department of Orthopedics for your entertainment and your education. It was originally delivered as a mini med school lecture to about 250 members of the Chapel Hill, North Carolina community. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. I'm Doug Dershel from UNC Orthopedics. I'm presenting a presentation entitled The Long and Winding Road, The Past, Present, and Future of Fracture Care. This will be educational, but I also hope it will be entertaining. For as long as mankind has walked the earth, he has sustained injuries and fractures. For just as long, major fractures have been a threat to human productivity and function, and, in many cases, human life. No fracture is more serious than the open fracture, the fracture in which the bone bursts through the soft tissues and skin to allow the outside world, with all its dirt, debris, and nasty bacteria, to come into contact with the fractured bone. Attempts at fracture care date back thousands of years. The oldest surviving written techniques for fracture care are from 5,000 years ago. Fracture care through the ages has been crude, perhaps even barbaric, using splints of linen stiffened with wine, pillows, pitch and tar, and other accoutrements. Although we think of fracture care today as modern, perhaps even elegant, However, one could argue that even today, our techniques for caring for fractures remain somewhat crude and inelegant. The best way we have of treating an open fracture today includes washing it vigorously with a device that looks much like a shower pick, stabilizing it with pins and bars in a temporary fashion, and then later inserting long metallic plates and screws. This is effective, but hardly elegant. I hope I can convince you, however, that today we're on the cusp of a new era in fracture care, one in which a deep understanding of the biology of fracture repair and healing is married to technology that allows us to achieve stability and pain relief through minimally invasive methods, and which promises to enable us to directly manipulate the biology at the fracture site to further augment healing. We cannot understand the future, however, without first understanding the past. Thus, I will make my points today through the telling of a story, the story of fracture care through the ages. The story won't be complete or highly detailed, but it will be illustrative of care through the ages. In telling this story, I hope to inform you, entertain you, and prepare you for key points I will make later about the future of fracture care. The main character in our story will be the open tibial fracture. The tibia, or shin bone, is one of the most commonly fractured bones in the body, and its scant covering of soft tissue makes it the most likely bone to have an open fracture. Feel your own shin and see how easily it would be for a broken tibia to burst out through the thin skin covering this area. So, with this fracture as our main character, let's begin our story. From the time of earliest recorded history, Records clearly demonstrate an understanding of the structural support the skeleton provides the body. Structural integrity of the skeleton is necessary for human function, and fracture treatment was, and still is today, aimed at restoring the structural strength of the skeleton. The earliest known written treatise devoted to surgery was written in Egypt, about 2800 to 3000 BC, or about 5000 years ago. It is called the Edwin Smith Papyrus, named for the American Egyptologist who, between 1858 and 1876, purchased portions of the papyrus from an Egyptian dealer in antiquities. This means from a grave robber. 
Some have suggested the treatise was written by Imhotep, a prominent Egyptian architect, builder, engineer, and medical man of the time, but this has never been proven. The papyrus contains a series of case reports, of only which 48 are preserved, arranged in order from head to toe. Incidentally, this arrangement, from head to foot, has not changed in medical textbooks, even till today. Many of the surviving cases in the papyrus discuss the care of fractures of bone, which were generally treated with a splint of wooden boards wrapped in linen bandages. A specimen seen here from the period of the Edwin Smith papyrus was found near Luxor in 1903 and shows a femur bone or thigh bone fractured in an adolescent child. We know this is an adolescent because of the open physis or growth plate near the knee that is near enclosure. The splinting materials in this photo can clearly be identified and consist of wooden splints and bits of linen. Also, this figure shows that it is clear that death occurred shortly after injury. This is evident because of the complete absence of any evidence of even partial healing of the fracture. Contrast this to a method of treatment seen here that was used in Sri Lanka about 15 years ago. Note the similarities to that of the ancient Egyptians, with wooden splints, linen bandages, and this time rope replacing the other linen strips used in ancient Egypt. While this is not the sort of fracture care one would get in the United States today, it shows that this method is very effective and that splinting materials in many parts of the world have not changed appreciably in 5,000 years. But our story is about the open fracture. It just so happens that case 37 in the Edmund Smith papyrus describes an open fracture of the tibia. And it reads as, as such, If thou examinest a man having a break in his lower leg over which a wound has been inflicted, and thou findest that the break crepitates under thy fingers, and thou findest that the wound which is over the break, with blood issuing from it and piercing through to the interior of his injury, you should say concerning him, one having a break in his lower leg, over which a wound has been inflicted, piercing through to the bone. This is an ailment not to be treated. In the papyrus, there were three treatments for any injury or condition. An ailment that will heal, an ailment with which I will contend, and an ailment not to be treated. The first category is, of course, self-limiting conditions. The second are those with which the physician felt he could likely affect a cure or improvement, and the final, an ailment not to be treated, was synonymous with death. So as you can see, an open fracture in ancient Egypt was virtually synonymous with death and was not to be treated. As you will see as we go forward, this outcome did not change substantially until about 150 years ago. 2,500 years later, in the time of Hippocrates, there was a great deal more experience with open fracture care. Nonetheless, the care was little changed from the time of the ancient Egyptians. Hippocrates treated such fractures with cleansing of the wound and then sealing the wound with pitch or balsam, wrapping the limb in compresses soaked with wine to stiffen them, followed by splinting the limb in wooden splints wrapped with linen. Nearly all cases in Hippocrates' time resulted in death, but those few who survived went through a long period of infection, also known as suppuration, prior to the healing of the fractured bone. It is perhaps important to recognize that Hippocrates lived roughly halfway between the time of the ancient Egyptians and the present day. The understanding, care, and outcomes, then, of open fractures had not changed in over 2,500 years, 
and they are not to change substantially for nearly another 2,500. The next major contribution to our story comes from Celsus, who lived around the time of Christ. His major contribution to medicine was the writing of a medical textbook called De Medicina, which advocated essentially no changes from Hippocratic methods. This textbook was important because it was lost, then rediscovered in 1478 when it was published in Italy and became the single most influential guide to medieval medicine. Pertinent to our story, however, Celsus introduced the medical community to the idea that amputation of the leg was advisable in cases of open tibial fracture, while records of the mortality rates for this treatment in Celsus's day have not survived the rate of death from infection was certainly nearly 100%. Amputation as a preferred treatment for an open tibial fracture would predominate from the time of Christ until after the American Civil War. Some attempts at fracture care without amputation are reported, but they are rare, were usually in physicians, interestingly, and were always attended by a long period of infection. Our story will examine two of these reports. The first example is that of Ambrose Paré, who lived and worked in the 16th century. He wrote of his own experience with an open tibial fracture, which he sustained when he was kicked by a horse, resulting in an open fracture four finger breadths above his ankle. The wound was treated with a combination of egg white, flour, chimney soot, and fresh melted butter. When the surgeon arrived, the bones were realigned and the limbs splinted, with pillows, wooden splints, and linen bandages, and elevated. The splints were treated with wine to strengthen them, exactly as recommended by Hippocrates almost 2,000 years earlier. Fever set in on the 11th day and persisted for a week before breaking. Very uncharacteristically for his time, the fracture went on to unite, and Perret reported that, finally, thanks to God, I was entirely healed without limping in any way. Our second example, which occurred 200 years later, was the case of Percival Pott in 1756. This illustrates that the accepted care of the open fracture had not made any further progress, and also shows the ambivalence of the surgical uh, enterprise at the time to this care. Pott was one of the preeminent surgeons in London, who sustained an open fracture of the tibia when he was thrown from his horse. Pott would not allow himself to be moved fearing that the rough treatment of the leg would increase the danger of infection. Instead, he lay on the street and sent for two chairmen. He purchased a door from a nearby house and had himself carried by the chairman on the door across London Bridge to his home, a distance of about four miles. Consultation with a number of surgeons brought the recommendation for amputation, a recommendation with which Pott agreed. As the amputation equipment was being readied, a young surgeon, a Mr. Norse, entered the room and recommended that the limb be saved. A heated discussion followed, the details of which were not recorded, but the outcome of which was that Mr. Norse treated the limb, which healed after a 30-day period of infection. Pot kept his leg, but the young surgeon, Mr. Norse, was denied admission to the Royal College of Surgeons for some years on account of his reckless and unconventional treatment of Pott's fracture. The first written appreciation of the biology of the open fracture did not appear until the late 18th century, when Pierre-Joseph de Sault, chief surgeon of a prominent Paris hospital, discussed the mechanical cleaning of the wound, a procedure he called debridement. 
We still call this procedure debridement today. The Sol's students practice this technique on battlefields all over Europe, removing dead tissue and foreign matter and attempting to change the nature of the wound wherever possible to that of an incised wound. This technique, while an important advance in the care of open fracture wounds, was used as a prelude to amputation, which was still performed in the majority of cases. Information from the Crimean Wars, which involved the French and British fighting the Russians from 1853 to 1856, indicated a survival rate after open fracture of 63%, with nearly all deaths resulting from infection after amputation. Things were no different at the time of the American Civil War, ten years later, and amputation was the rule following an open fracture. It was estimated that three of four gunshot wounds sustained by Union troops in the war were to the extremities, and more than 30,000 amputations were performed by Union surgeons. The number performed by Confederate surgeons is known with much less certainty, but is probably nearly equal to that on the Union side. This photograph clearly opposed picture, reveals a truth and a falsehood about Civil War surgery. The truth is that anesthesia was widely available in Union field hospitals and was used for most surgical procedures. What we see in the movies of the patient biting a bullet or a piece of wood was rarely practiced in the Civil War. The falsehood, however, is that the surgeon rarely operated in his uniform coat. A blood-stained white apron was the more common dress for surgery. Battlefield amputation was performed so frequently and freely that it was not uncommon to see a pile of severed limbs five feet high outside of a surgical tent near a Civil War battlefield. One observer at Gettysburg remarked that these hospitals, whether in tents or barns or houses or in the open, we aptly described as miserable death holes. The first sight to greet anyone approaching them was the growing pile of amputated hands and feet and whole limbs. A Pennsylvanian likened the sight to a Philadelphia slaughterhouse. The same observer went on to say that the surgeons, with coats off and sleeves rolled up, are about their work, and their faces and clothes are spattered with blood, and though they look weary and tired, their work goes systematically on. How much and how long they have worked? The pile of legs and arms and feet partially tell. The outcomes following treatment in the Civil War were no different from those in the Crimean Wars. In a group of over 6,500 cases of gunshot fracture of the femur reported by the Surgeon General, the survival rate on the Union side was 50%. Thus, we've traveled in our story about 4,800 years, and the best treatment known for an open fracture of the tibia is amputation with about a 50-50 chance of survival. Fortunately, this was about to change. The next major development in our story was a result of the work of Joseph Lister on antisepsis. Lister, working in Glasgow, Scotland in 1864, became aware of the work of Louis Pasteur. Pasteur, of course, relied on heat for sterilization, a process we still today call pasteurization. Lister, understanding that this would not work in the treatment of injuries in the human body, that you couldn't just heat them up, turned to the study of chemical compounds to kill bacteria. He was eventually to choose carbolic acid, also known as phenol, as his antiseptic agent. Lister first applied his antiseptic principles in March 1865 
in a patient with, of course, an open tibial fracture. He sterilized the air about the wound with a fine spray of carbolic acid, and he soaked the surgical instruments and the surgeon's hands in the same solution. By 1867, he had treated 11 cases of open tibial fracture with this technique and published his results. Lister had only one death from secondary bleeding, not from infection, a mortality rate of 9%. Keep in mind, at the same time in the American Civil War, the mortality rate was 50%. Lister's techniques were slow to catch on in the surgical community, but they did finally spread. In 1884, Frederick Dennis of New York published a paper entitled The Treatment of Compound Fractures, including a report of 144 cases without a death from septic infection and 100 cases without a death from any cause. Dennis, in his paper, outlined the principles of open fracture care that are still followed today. These include absolute cleanliness, thorough debridement or removal of any dead material or foreign matter, immediate fixation of the fracture, and finally provision for free drainage when necessary. The amputation rate after open fractures diminished dramatically after the introduction of these principles. You should also note that this is the first mention in 4,800 years of our stories of fixation of open fractures. The low rates of infection after antiseptic techniques took hold resulted in retaining the limb and also opened the door for surgical treatment of the fracture itself. Further changes in the care of these injuries for the next 100 years would be focused largely on providing more stable fixation of the open fracture, almost always by surgical means. A variety of screw, plate, and external fixation techniques were developed in the early 20th century, including the first-of-its-kind external fixator developed in the USA by Dr. Clayton Parkhill in 1905. This device had pins inserted through the skin into the bone, and then a frame assembled to those pins outside the bone to hold the fracture in alignment. Parkhill's and other devices were all attempts to more rigidly stabilize the bone, these attempts generally, however, met with the same success rate as treatment of fractures in plaster or casts alone. In the 1950s, the AO group, consisting of three Swiss surgeons who were influenced by the techniques of Robert Dany of Brussels, revolutionized fracture stabilization with the introduction of plating techniques that would achieve absolute stability of bony fractures. Their philosophy that rigid stabilization of bone would allow immediate motion of adjacent joints and mobility of the patients has been immortalized in the mantra, life is movement and movement is life. The AO philosophy and the educational network that the AO group established have influenced orthopedic surgeons throughout the Western world. The classic AO technique, while a great advance in the care of open fractures, focused largely on the mechanical stability of the fracture site Using AO techniques in high-energy open tibial fractures resulted in infection rates as high as 33%, rates nearly four times those of Lister nearly a century before. Why? The answer lies in the fact that the large open surgery required for AO technique did not respect sufficiently the biology of the fracture and the local tissues. Let me explain. To achieve absolute stability of a fractured bone required a long compression plate fixed to the bone with as many as 12 screws. 
The only way to perform this sort of surgery was to make a large exposure of the bone. This exposure actually stripped away from the bone its blood supply by removing from the bone the periosteum and other soft tissues that bring blood flow to the bone. In addition, the plate and screw construct provides stability being creating via creating frictional forces between the plate and the bone. That is to say that the plate must be tightly squeezed against the bone to provide stability. In a slight exaggeration, some believe that this squeezing of the plate to the bone actually squeezes the blood supply from the bone, making it less able to heal. While this is a bit of an exaggeration, it is true that the advances in surgical techniques for stabilizing the bone in the 20th century harmed the fracture biology and may have actually resulted in a poorer biologic environment at the fracture than had been present in the era of plaster treatment of these fractures, as performed by Lister. This brings our story, however, to the present day, a day I will call the Era of Biological Stabilization. While this is a bit of a misnomer, as the metallic implants we use today are hardly biologic, it does represent an evolution in the philosophy of managing the open fracture, and it has rapidly taken hold. This philosophy recognizes that fracture healing requires a balance between the mechanical and the biological environments at the fracture site. Fractures must have mechanical stability to heal, but they will never heal without the appropriate and favorable biological environment. Techniques for fracture stabilization, then, must preserve the blood and other biological factors necessary for healing to occur at the fracture site. No longer do we talk in terms of absolute stability of the bone. Rather, we speak today in terms of relative stability, stability that is just enough to overcome physiologic forces but that allows a small amount of wiggling of the bone, which actually speeds fracture union. The statement, first do no harm, that is part of the Hippocratic Oath, applies well here, as we must assure that, in providing fracture stability, we do as little damage as possible to the biology. This philosophy has led to newer techniques for fracture stabilization, techniques that are intended to leave undisturbed the biological environment at the fracture site. One of such examples shown here is tibial nailing, insertion of an intramedullary nail down the center of the tibia without ever directly exposing the fracture site. While this is not a new technique, it's been around for 40 or 50 years, it illustrates the present-day philosophy. A second example is that of minimally invasive plating or percutaneous plating. This is a newer technique, where as seen here, small incisions are made below and above the fracture, and a long plate is slipped beneath the skin and along the bone uh, until it lies over the entire fracture site. Through the two small incisions, then, screws are introduced at the top and bottom ends of the plate, achieving relative stability while preserving biology by never exposing the fracture site. The philosophy of biological stabilization and the techniques that follow from it assume that the biologic environment at the fracture site is adequate to support fracture healing if it is simply left alone. In truth, however, this may not always be so. High-energy open fractures with tissue or bone loss can result in a biological environment that is simply not sufficient to support healing, no matter what method of biologically friendly stabilization the surgeon uses. The patient with poor circulation 
advanced age, or uncontrolled diabetes, among other medical problems, may simply not have the biological reserve to heal a fracture quickly and completely. Thus, we may need to take our new philosophy one step further. In addition to respecting biology, we may also need to manipulate it. This is exactly what we are learning to do. We are learning slowly to understand the detailed and highly complex biological steps that occur in fracture healing. And we are making attempts to manipulate or augment these steps with a variety of things we call bioactive substances, sometimes also called adjuncts to fracture healing. We now have at our disposal a variety of substances we can place, dump, pack, or inject into a fracture site in the hopes of augmenting the biology and the healing potential. These substances come in a wide variety of sizes, shapes, chemical compositions, and physical and biological properties. They can be anything from processed cadaveric bone to denatured proteins to ceramics such as calcium sulfate, calcium phosphate, or calcium hydroxyapatite, and in some cases can actually be uh, genetically engineered proteins that are present in bone. These recombinant bone morphogenic proteins, uh, there are two on the market now, have been reasonably successful. Even these methods, however, are rather crude, as we simply dump a substance into a fracture site in hopes of enhancing healing. The truly elegant and revolutionary developments will come in the future, as we future further develop our understanding of how various growth factors, chemicals produced by the body to control various steps of fracture healing, truly work. There are these factors such as transforming growth factor beta, which is a superfamily of these proteins, and born morphogenic proteins, which I've already mentioned. These have signaling properties, which can be modulated by tiny chemicals within the cell. As we learn how these signals work and how chemicals within the cell modulate them, we have the potential, through animal research, basic science research, and finally translation research into humans, to manipulate at the cellular level the fracture healing process in an effort to improve the rate and the completeness of fracture healing. Our story has now spanned 5,000 years, from the time of the ancient Egyptians to the present and maybe even the future. And I should begin to summarize to make some key take-home points for you. To assist me with this, I'm thinking in terms of a rather crude, but I hope effective, timeline of many of the major individuals we've spoken of in our story beginning with the Edwin Smith Papyrus 5,000 years ago, moving through Hippocrates and Celsus, the Saul, Lister, Dennis, the AO group, and then the day of the future. This same timeline can be expressed to show the evolution of treatment methods in our story, rather than people. In this way, it would begin with not to be treated in ancient Egypt, go through splints and amputation, until eventually the breedmont, antisepsis, internal fixation, and biologic stabilization uh, were seen. Note now how there have been revolutions in treatment through the years. And also note how the rate of change and the rate of new developments in treatment has accelerated over time, particularly in the last 50 years. Each of these revolutions has resulted in improvement in patient care, 
or in patient outcomes, such as mortality. Think of how exciting it would have been to be practicing medicine at the time of one of these cusps or developments or revolutions in treatment. For example, how exciting must it have been to have been practicing medicine at the time of Joseph Lister, when, in the course of one decade, one could see the mortality rate after open fractures decrease from nearly 50% to essentially zero. Now, I will submit to you that we're on one of these cusps or revolutions in treatment today, not one that will, like Lister's introduction of antisepsis, result in such a dramatic change in mortality rates, but one that will be dramatic in patient outcomes nonetheless. If we looked at a timeline greatly magnified to only show the area around today, we could visualize this better. While the mortality rate with open fractures is essentially 0%, 15% of these fractures still do not heal. They go on to non-union. And when they do heal, it takes over five months on average. And even when they do heal, only about half of patients return to completely normal functioning after treatment. I think we can expect a revolution in bio biologic understanding of fracture care and our new philosophy of biologically friendly fixation to make substantial improvements in many of these parameters. Getting fractured healed more completely and faster will be a dramatically important to the patient who the fracture puts out of work and without a source of income. Faster union means faster return to work, and more complete functional restoration means vigorous productive work for many years hence. In summary, it truly has been a long and winding road for the care of open fractures, but it has never been more exciting than today. We have come a long way from Egyptian techniques of splinting to biological plating and the use of adjuncts to bone healing. The truly exciting fact, however, is that change is coming more and more rapidly as we begin to marry our improved understanding of and ability to manipulate the fracture biology with exciting new methods of stabilization that allow us to relieve pain, achieve stability in minimally invasive and biologically unfriendly ways. Soon we will know, even at the cellular level, how we can manipulate the healing response to achieve more complete and more rapid union of these severe fractures. Thank you so very much for your kind attention. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation.